Dear brothers and sisters, thank you for joining us again this week. Today marks the first week of Advent. Now, Advent is a time where we prepare ourselves as we wait to celebrate the first coming of Christ and look forward towards his second coming. In light of that, our passage for today is taken from Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. This passage helps us to look forward towards the second coming of Christ that was prophesied by Christ himself during his first coming. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help me to preach faithfully. Help us to listen carefully, even with the distractions of being at home and watching online. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now friends, on this topic of the second coming, we can categorize Christians into two big groups. One group is the one you would have read about in the news. They are the ones who follow preachers who claim that they will know when the second coming of Christ will happen. So <clears throat> they would have some special calculation based on some fancy theory and they will teach you that definitely this is the date when Christ will return. And there are various levels of commitment amongst them. Some would go around telling everyone about their theory and calculation. And some will even try to tie in things that happens in the world like uh, the introduction of barcodes, RFID chips, or even 5G data. And they will teach all sorts of funny things about the end times. And I know some of you have been forwarding such messages on WhatsApp is probably not helpful in teaching good Christian discernment, even if it's fun. Then, on that day, when they prophesied that the end is coming, they will wait for the end of the world to come. But as it has been shown again and again throughout history, that day will be a normal day and they will be devastated. If you have watched documentaries on this, you will see them exhibiting extreme sorrow and sadness because their fundamental beliefs have been proven wrong. Some would have given away their life savings to their leaders or missed out on opportunities because they believed in this. But the main reason they are so sad is because they had put all their hopes on Jesus coming back on that particular day and they had made all their preparations. It's quite sad actually when you see it for yourself because ultimately their sorrow comes from their deep faith. Knowing that makes you want to go give them a pat on the back and tell them, hey, don't be sad, cheer up. It's not the end of the world after all. Then we have the second group. And this is where most of us are in. We give intellectual assent to the idea that Jesus will come back one day. But the truth does not change us or our pursuits. We will pay lip service, of course, make sure we are at church at Christmas and on Sundays, but there is something lacking in how we live our lives. And our passage today addresses those of us who are living in this state. Then, there is a very small minority who, however, gets it right. To them, the idea that Christ is coming back is one that they hold to, and their lives are changed in response to this. We want to be thinking about how we want to be like them. So friends, as we look at the passage today, as we contemplate Advent, don't just celebrate it, but ask the tough questions. What does Advent mean to you? And how has your life changed in response to this anticipation of Christ's coming? With that, let's turn to the first part of our passage. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. 
Here in this section, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and earlier he has just revealed to them about a time of tribulation when false prophets and false Christ will rise up. In this earlier part of the passage, Jesus warns them of what the future has in store for the disciples. He tells them that they will be delivered to councils beaten in synagogues and will have to stand before governors and kings for Jesus' sake to bear witness to the gospel. During this time, Jesus warns them that there will be a great time of tribulation that will come when God will allow judgment to fall on Israel. The people are not to hold on to Jerusalem anymore. They should not expect God to protect them as he always have. But rather this time, Jesus tells them to flee when this time of judgment comes because God is going to allow Jerusalem to fall. God is going to allow the temple to be destroyed. And we do see this time of judgment finally coming down in AD 70 when the armies of Rome laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple until not even one stone is left to stand upon another. And so one part of this prophecy is already fulfilled. Then Jesus brings us to verse 24 from our passage and talks about a day that is coming after this period of trial and testing. This day that Jesus talks about will come with great portents that will be unmistakable. The sun darkens, the moon will not shine, the stars will fall down from heaven, and the spiritual rulership and authority over this world will be shaken and turned around. Now, while this imagery doesn't seem comforting to us, Jesus is actually speaking of something that is meant to bring the disciples comfort. Remember, these things happen when the followers of Jesus are being persecuted, even as they seek to bring the gospel to all the corners of the world. This day that Jesus is speaking about, therefore comes as a day that ends the persecution. Since the fall of Jerusalem, we know that there seems to be no place for those faithful to God to be free from the persecution of the world. We may not feel it as much as others do, but the truth is that there is always active persecution in many places in many ways. There is persecution by the government in power. We see this as we read about certain underground churches in China where there is constant fear of being arrested. There is persecution by terrorists, such as in the West African states of Burkina Faso, where terrorists have killed church leaders, kidnapped families and ransomed them and burned down churches and schools. Think of ISIS and Boko Haram. There is persecution by other religions that form the majority, such as in India, where Hindu nationalists claim that to be Indian is to be Hindu and thus Christians are targeted. If you are in Iran and you are a Christian, you have to do it in a hidden manner. There is persecution by culture, where Christians are persecuted because they don't support certain things that the world wants to support, such as homosexuality or gender identity. Remember the bakers who refused to bake a cake because they did not want to be part of a gay wedding? In these and many ways, the initial persecution that Jesus talked about, while starting with the fall of Jerusalem, still goes on until today. And this persecution goes on because the world is under the control of the powers in heaven, where the prince of the power of the air reigns, Satan himself. So when in verse 25, when Jesus says that this power will be shaken, he's telling us that the power of Satan will come to an end. 
and Christ will rule. These trials and tribulations that are borne by Christians have an ultimate end. But this isn't all that Jesus tells them. In verse 26, we see that Jesus reveals that this day that is coming will reveal the Son of Man coming with the clouds with great power and glory. Now, this reference that Jesus used here, the Son of Man, is a term that he uses for himself. Many times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and this term can just be understood to mean a human being. Ezekiel was called Son of Man by God. Yet, Jesus used this term not just to show that he's a man, he's also making a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where we see one like a Son of Man who comes before God and receives all power and authority. Now, while the disciples may not have made the connection with the prophesied Son of Man when they first heard of Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, here they cannot mistake what he means because Jesus makes it clear. This is the Son of Man that will come in cloud with great power. But of course, you may wonder just what is the significance of Jesus returning as the Son of Man coming from the clouds? Here then is the good news. In verse 27, Jesus will then send out the angels to gather his elect from everywhere. This is the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples, that when he comes again, there will not only be a change in authority, but Jesus will gather all his people again to him. Now, some liberal theologians will say that the disciples were cheated and lived their lives expecting for a second coming to save them from suffering. But since it didn't come in their lifetimes, their sacrifice is wasted and they could have lived more cautious lifestyle to have a full and long life. They will argue that the disciples believed in vain and must have felt cheated when Jesus did not return, even when the last of them died. But as Christians, we don't look at this with our worldly wisdom, but rather look at it through the eyes of Scripture. The disciples knew exactly what their hope was in. Think of passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.14, where they make it clear that the hope that believers who died faithfully in Christ have is in the promise that God will raise them up again. The whole point of the book of Revelation is to explain that Jesus will raise up even the dead and lead them into glory. Thus, you will realize that what Jesus is talking about here isn't the immediate salvation of the disciples during the destruction of the temple, but is talking about a complete and total victory at the end where every disciple of Jesus will be saved. It is the word of our Lord and he has fulfilled everything that he has promised. Thus our response is to realize that there will be a day of reckoning, that there will be a day when justice will be meted out, when the faithful are rewarded, gathered up by the angels and brought into the very presence of the Lord who loves them. While this great upheaval that Jesus mentions will be scary to those who do not know him, for those who are his, this coming is not something to be afraid of, but rather something to rejoice in and look forward to. That, friends, is the hope that Christians live for. That is why Advent is precious, because we need to remember this to have any meaningful hope in this world. So the question to ask is, do you truly believe in this? Do you genuinely believe that you will be raised up and Christ will return? Because if you don't, 
You are not a Christian at all. Next then, we look at the second part of our passage, which spans from verse 28 to 31. Now, this part directly continues from what Jesus had been telling the disciples about his return in power. As we look at verse 28, we see Jesus explain things to them using the fig tree as an analogy. When a fig tree goes through fall and winter, it will look pathetic and dead. However, when we see that dead-looking plant starting to grow leaves and the hardened wood becomes tender again, then you have that assurance that summer is coming and the dark and cold of winter will go away. So as the disciples see the things that Jesus predicts happen, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, the persecution that comes, they also know that this is a clear sign that the things Jesus says about his second coming too will come to pass. So also for us, as we see the persecution of the church and our own suffering, we know that ultimately Jesus will come back. So trust in that hope to keep you going. If you still doubt them, note that Jesus speaks in the same manner as Isaiah declared. The grass withers, the flowers fade, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. However, here, it is the word of Jesus that stands forever. Jesus is God speaking to us. And if we cannot believe God when he declares such truths to us so emphatically, then we have a great problem with our hearts. With that, we come to the final part of our passage in verse 32 to 37, where we see Jesus warning us that this revelation that he will return again to also be a warning for us and not just as an assurance. So we come to verse 32 and we see immediately that the actual day or hour is not known by anyone. This immediately tells us that when someone claims to know when Jesus is coming, that person is teaching error. Even Jesus does not know. Now, for some people, the idea that Jesus does not know when the hour of his return will be is something shocking to them. They then use this to question the divinity of Jesus. There are, of course, explanations for this, but we can take the simple answer to guide us. No, that Jesus fully claims to be God because he claims that his word stands forever and that he is the one that receives all authority and power from God, putting himself as equal to God. And with that authority, Jesus is still able to proclaim that he himself does not know when the hour will be. If this isn't a problem for Jesus, then it shouldn't be one for us too. So take Jesus based on everything he says and not by trying to dissect what he says to contradict what he had said earlier. Jesus then tells his disciples to be on guard and to be awake. And the reason for this is that since nobody knows when the hour will come, we cannot anticipate it. This means that while we have the guarantee that Jesus will come again, we don't know when that will happen. This then means that we should consider the coming of Christ as something that is imminent. That is, it can happen anytime because all the conditions required for his return has already been fulfilled. This is actually part of God's grace towards us. Firstly, imagine if the disciples know exactly how long they need to wait until Christ returns. It's been 2,000 years and he still hasn't. 
how would they be able to persevere and hold on as they go through things in their life? Secondly, imagine if we know the exact hour when Jesus will return. It will give us time to be off guard and to slack off in our duties. And as disciples, that is a bad thing. In fact, if we look at verse 34, we see that this is exactly what Jesus wants us not to do. He tells us a parable of how a master will leave and put his servants in charge and remind them to stay awake. So when the master does finally return, and he returns without the knowledge of the servants, they would not be found lacking in their duties. Friends, we are sinful. We will slack off if we can get away with it. In fact, even when we know we can't get away with it, and God knows our every single thoughts, deeds, and actions, we still sin, don't we? How much more will we fail to live and persevere in our Christian lives if we know when Jesus will return? So friends, I too urge you, stay awake because you don't know when your master will return. So with that, we come to the end of the sermon and think about how this applies to us. Immediately, we can pick up that we need to not only acknowledge that Jesus is coming back at any time, but we also should live changed lives in response to that. We cannot go on sinning and chasing after our own dreams and desires because when Jesus does come back, it will be too late to backtrack to live a Christ-centered life. Jesus may come back the very next minute, or he may not come back even when you draw your last breath, but either way, you will be there when he comes back. Whether you're in the prime of life or the very brink of death, you have no excuses. Now, there will be some who will be lax in matters of faith. I can't focus. I can focus on my career now. And when I'm most secure in my job and earn enough, then I will focus more on God. Think back of what Jesus wants and ask yourself, should you be concerned? We should be spending our lives by being sober-minded and pursuing discipleship with everything that we do. Even our careers should be part of the path of us growing in discipleship and not something for our gain and comfort in this life. In fact, if your career and desire to seek comforts are not part of the path of your discipleship, then cast them aside. You're not going to have any value when Jesus comes back. Now, don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying you can't have a career. But rather, what I'm saying is that your career should be something that you use to grow in your Christian character and not in your worldly character. So if your work tests you in terms of how you treat people, then seek to treat people with Christ-like compassion. If your work tests you in honesty, then seek to grow in that. If you find yourself forgetting about your Christian character and just focusing on how to get ahead at work, and hear my warning again. Stay awake. The master can return at any time. In another point, there may be some that think youth is to be enjoyed. And when you're more older and more settled, then and only then should we bother with religious instructions and exhortation towards godliness. This shapes how we think of Christian accountability and discipline for ourselves, our children and others. How many parents merely think that their children who are neglecting God are going to be okay when they settle down? 
focus on your study now, focus on sports and other activities. There's always time for Christ later. It's okay to skip church or Bible studies. Focus on tuition, exams, sports. Now, we may not directly say these kind of things, but don't we sometimes think that way, especially when telling this to those that we love and urging them to pursue Christian growth, knowing that that will mean they lose out on certain worldly things. It's hard to say the right things. And this is not how Christians are meant to be thinking. Our duty then is to encourage and build up every Christian in our path, spurring them onto godliness and not to take a lax attitude. There may not be a tomorrow to turn around and change. So every day and every encounter with each other matters. In fact, some of you may be thinking now, why is this guy being so extreme? But friends, think of the passage and what Jesus teaches us. I am compelled by this passage to urge you to do this, to be thinking in this way. Now, it doesn't mean that if your kid really needs that Sunday to revise because the paper is tough and you allow them to take a break from church, you have failed. The question is how to approach the idea of taking a break from church. Is it the first thing you sacrifice? Or do you genuinely try to squeeze out other less essential things to make space for church? Do you teach them that church is really important and if they miss it, then they are to pay careful attention to make sure that they catch up with what they're supposed to learn and seek encouragement from the Word and seek encouragement in Christian fellowship through other avenues. Jesus comes to gather those who are faithful to Him and the rest will face the second coming of Christ as those who are his enemy. So what do you want to be when he comes? What do you want your children to be when he comes? Are you sure that if you continue on in your ta'apa attitude to your sins, you will have time to change? It is time for you to have an emergency meeting. Sit down with the family. Look at your priorities and set them straight. For some of us, our opportunity to repent and be faithful disciples can end with a sudden sickness or an accident. So do we want to live our lives as if we have all the time in the world or do we want to live life the way Jesus wants us to live, eagerly expecting Christ to return anytime and be diligent in our Christian growth and our love for the Lord? Finally, for those who are struggling because you're holding on to your Christian faith, things may be hard for now, but rest assured that when Christ comes back and declares, well done, good and faithful servant, all your suffering will be worth it. You can ask anyone who has talked to someone on their deathbed, and I will guarantee you that no Christian will ever say, now that I've reached the end of my path, I wish I didn't spend that much time serving God or reading the Bible or praying. If only I used my time to do other more fun things that I could have enjoyed more. No, you will not hear that. Because when you are face to face with your own mortality, then meeting Christ becomes all too real. So don't wait until then. You may not even get that chance to regret if you are lax. So as we appreciate Advent, and we remember the first coming of Christ and look to the second coming. Let us focus with laser-like precision on the direction that
that our lives are taking and make our adjustments. This season is the perfect season to reflect and repent. So let us seek to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for we have failed you in many ways in thought, speech, word, and action. But Father, we thank you for the times that we have been faithful because you have been working in us through your Spirit. So help us, Father, to long for this faithfulness. Through your Spirit, grow us more and more to love you. Rebuke our slot in fixing our hearts and draw us back to you, Lord. Lead us to love you with every breath of our heart as we eagerly await for Jesus to come back any moment. All this we pray and ask in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.